is it over? Now, there we go. There, just like pulling a tooth. There we are. Came out screaming and yelling. You know, speaking of screaming and yelling, and as long as we're going to start the week off right, I must have hit a genuine sore nerve last week. A genuine exposed nerve on the program Re the Search for Superman. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can always tell when, when, when somebody has tickled that raw exposed thing that sticks out of every basically untapped tooth nerve. Uh, when when the, the next day you come in and there's a pile of mail written in angry scrawls, you know, that kind of thing. Well, one of the most, uh, I, I, I don't often talk about the mail, but one of the most intriguing things about this uh, search for Superman thing is uh, the outrage screams from the Ayn Randists, or the Ann Randists, if you prefer, all of whom uh, uh, assume that, uh, that I have not read Atlas Shrugged or assume that I have not read uh, any of the other uh, badly written novels that, that have appeared, uh, uh, tracks actually, that have appeared under her name. As a matter of fact, I can tell you, to the most of you, that my first argument over uh, The Fountainhead occurred maybe two weeks after it was published, before any, most of you had ever heard of it while you were still struggling through Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. I hate to pull rank on you here. However, uh, the argument always resolves itself. That one of, probably one of the most significant, uh, uh, I suppose you might say, outcroppings of this argument is that whenever you touch on the search for Superman in any given society, people will invariably... Uh, will invariably get very excited because this search is a very basic search. Uh, the, the search for a father, the search for an image that is all-seeing, all-encompassing, all-moral, and impregnable to the heirs, to the fleshly uh, uh, failings that we have. We're looking for a president, for example, made out of stainless steel that does not rust. Uh, we are looking, oh yes, we are. We are looking for a president or a, a leader that comes from some very different uh, plane of existence than we do. Why do you think most people were very angry uh, at the fact that, that uh, Harry Truman had operated a haberdashery shop unsuccessfully? That made him a very bad Superman. I mean, <laughs> so that's going to be held against him for, for all time. No matter what he did from that day on, it doesn't matter. To many people, he remains an unsuccessful haberdasher. Uh, so, so we will increasingly find that our supermen will come from the ranks of people who have not had the opportunity to fail. In short, uh, this is to me the basic reason why most of the men today who are making it big in politics are wealthy men and wealthy by family, rather than, uh, in most cases, having earned the wealth. Uh, because it's very difficult for a boy to fail whose father has $28 million in the bank from the word go. So it's easy to grow up to be a superman under those conditions, but very difficult to grow up if you come from Hessville, Indiana. Grow up to be a superman and you've worked in the steel mill. I'm sorry. You're never going to make it. Now... Uh, that's just a, that's just a, a very side issue. But I think one of the most, to me personally, significant reactions to 
this discussion of the Superman, and for those of you who didn't hear it, it doesn't matter anyway. You all know that we're searching for it. Always have been, and man always will be. One of the most interesting reactions, and, and I'm talking psychologically, is that almost all of the people who, who lodged violent complaints about my uh, interpretation of Ayn Rand uh, all said that what Miss Rand says, she says, use your brain. Use your brain. But yet, what was intriguing was that very few of the criticisms had any brain work in them. They were all violent, impassioned criticisms. Like, you slob, you got no right to talk about Miss Rand, you slob. She says, use your brain, you slob, slob. Die, you slob. Four uh, unprintable epithets, and then there's a big splotch of ink, and that's it. Well, you see, the point is that almost everybody who is searching for Superman believes he is using his brain. And it depends on how you use your brain. Nobody seems to think, you know, when they talk about objectivism and, and using logic, that there is good logic and bad logic. There is logic that sets, and they're both logic. There is logic that sets out to prove a point, and then there is logic that is used to search for a point. I'm afraid that most uh, people who are searching for Superman use logic to prove that Superman is possible, uh, not the other way around. Now, that's, that's just another side issue. However, I will say this, though, that, uh, that the search, you know, it, let's take, let's go back to Hitler's Germany again. You know what was intriguing to find that most of the, the philosophers, and I'm using great quotes around them, of the Nazi regime, and you know, most people only know Hitler. They don't know that there were dozens of Nazi philosophers who were very famous political commentary people and were called philosophers within the party and, in fact, created the atmosphere that made Hitler only the spearhead. Most people don't know that here in America. For some reason or other, they only know that there was Hitler and they figure that Hitler got up on a stump and got nine million people following him and that was the end of it. I'm sorry. That all of the philosophers, almost to a man, who were involved in this Hitler movement were rationalists. They claimed they were using their brain. They says, let's stop being sentimental about this stuff. Let's not be, let's not be sentimental and romantic. Let's face it, some people are better than other people. And they went out to prove that there was a Superman, and strangely enough, it was them. <laughs> Nobody ever proves there's a Superman, and it turns out to be somebody else. Uh, so, so I'm just, just saying to you, be careful when you use words like rationality. These words have always been catchphrases for people who want to prove, usually, an irrational point. Uh, the term rationality, the term objective, has about as much meaning as the term love. What makes you think that any man can be objective? We're all men. We all have our own failings. Uh, a short, fat man is not objective, no matter how hard he is about food, no matter how hard he tries. He is not going to be objective about fat, either. Uh, <laughs> he can claim he is. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we cannot control. There are many things in, within us. And, of course, one of the great problems of the rationalist is that he will not concede that there are large areas of his physical being, that is the, 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 the animal being that is within every one of us, that is every one of us, that there are large areas that have nothing whatsoever to do with rationality have not, and are uncontrollable by, ration, or by rational thinking, uh, that you cannot control your instincts. They are there. 
Now, you may be able to slightly curb them by ration, by rational thinking, by objective consideration, but you are not going to eradicate them, nor are you going to really essentially change them. Never. I'm sorry. Uh, there, there, there are several psychologists who are very unpopular in this country because, uh, I'm, I'm talking about schools of psychologists, because their, uh, their basic school is really, to, to make it to know, very, very basic broad definition, they say that there are elements within you that have more power and more potency than the feeble power of your mind, literally. And they say that if you, if you, if, if a man or if a person or if a motivational machine begins to cater to those parts and sides of that human being, that the mind will go out the window. Either that or the mind will be used to rationalize a basically irrational pursuit. In short, it, it, it would not be, it would not be hard for me here, uh, being a good, fairly good technician with words and ideas and so on. It would not be hard for me to convince a goodly portion of my listeners that they really are the victims of society. Wouldn't be hard for me to convince them of that. That not only are they victims of society, but society is an evil which is out to destroy them. Basically a beautiful flower-like creature. Because it's something that all of us want to believe. Very few of us can ever get the guts or uh, the irrationality to come proclaim it. But, but it wouldn't be hard for me to do that. Really wouldn't. Uh, providing for, now, I don't think it would be hard for many people to do if they approach it in the right, in the right technical sense. Now, uh, there are a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of things involved in this, this search for Superman, and I'm not going to continue to do that show tonight. I will say this, though, that, uh, that the more impassioned the cries the more I recognize that a nerve has been struck. Uh, the more, the more, and, uh, and I might say the more irrational, the more the, more the, uh, the, the, great, the boundless and groundless criticisms are made, the more I recognize that, uh, that this is a, is a raw nerve. Uh, the, uh, I, I find in my own mail, for example, I, I have found over the past ten years a great change that's come in the mail. And uh, it would be, I think it would be interesting to a good sociologist to look at a lot of this uh, for his own sociological research, that the change that has come is a, is, a, is, a, is a growing implicit belief in a certain kind of superiority on the part of the letter writer. Uh, this is a new thing in our time. I've not, I've, I, I, you know, I've been around long enough and I've gotten enough mail and I've, I've talked to enough people and I've heard enough impassioned cries over telephones to have observed a change that most people, I suspect, would not be totally aware of because they live what you might call private lives. Uh, and their life is a private life and, and they're, 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 in, they're involved with the, the lawnmower and they read the newspapers. And these things are not reported in newspapers because this is a day-by-day -day reporting of events which have very little to do with day-by-day -day reporting of a, uh, a zeitgeist. If we had a newspaper that reported uh, not only the change in barometric pressure and the change in weather, but the change in atmosphere, the people's attitude towards the world and themselves, you'd have a fascinating newspaper. Speaking of zeitgeist, this is WOR AM and FM New York. <laughs>
Honeymoon Hotel room service. Hi, this is Robert Morrison, room uh, 1112. Hey, Mr. Morris, aren't you and MGM Salary? Oh, him again. Honeymoon yes, Hotel? yes, I am. Oh, would you like me to send up some champagne? No, ma'am, I've got... Extra glasses? No, I've got... A bucket of ice, cigarettes, midnight snack? I have everything but a girl! Oh. Mr. Morris, you're breaking the rules of Honeymoon Hotel. You're a groom without a girl in your room. But that's what I'm calling about. <laughs> Will you marry me? Oh. Mr. Morris. <laughs> See what happens when the bride stays home and the groom goes on a honey-chasing honeymoon. Boy, it's honeymoon exciting. Hotel. Wow. It's Kisses and Honey with Robert Goulet, Nancy Kwan, Robert Morris, and Jill St. John in Honeymoon. Mm. Oh, she's... Oh, boy. Hotel in Metro Color. Don't miss MGM's new horror picture, Honeymoon Hotel, a showcase presentation starting tomorrow at specially selected theaters throughout greater New York, and it's getting greater all the time. Oh, yeah. Which, for some nutty reason, reminds me of your beautiful soul. Have you ever thought of expressing your beautiful crushed petal of a soul in Japanese haiku? The lovely 17-syllable, three-line verse form. The wild geese having gone, the rice field before my house seems far away. (laughs) Let's try an American haiku. My telephone not having rung. The spring can't be far away. My bills aren't paid. <laughs> yes, if you're a haiku man, send your your entry into the Japanese, the Japan Airlines haiku contest. Earn yourself a Sony Micro TV, which is a fantastic television set, by the way. And uh, have a lot of fun, and you can just express your soul all over the place. It has to be in by June 15th. Japan Airlines haiku contest, WOR, New York, 8. We are going to break away from the Gene Shepard show at this point to bring you on-the-scene reports from that hot California race involving Goldwater and Rockefeller, where the two men are running neck and neck in one of the warmest Republican presidential primaries in years. Let's go now to Los Angeles. A 55,300-some-odd figure for Rockefeller. There are some claims being made already that Goldwater has carried the state. But if you were monitoring our broadcast closely, you heard Samuel Lubell point out we still have the San Francisco returns to come in. If he can overcome this widening Los Angeles County lead that Goldwater has, he's going to have to do it by possibly a three-to-one margin. You have something there, George? Well, I, I just wanted to point out that of these figures that we now have, we have a little more than 110,000 fig- uh, uh, votes. Uh, out of uh, uh, somewhere 65% of uh, 3 million, 2 million 700,000 votes that were uh, yeah. Now, this, this means that there's certainly a great many more votes to be counted. Uh, it's a sample. It uh, could change. We know that we go back to the some of these uh, earlier... T- uh, Returns, uh, earlier years of returns in presidential and state elections, and some of the project, projections of figures, uh, they they don't hold up throughout the, the night and, and into the morning. There's a rather classic one that uh, you were recounting for us earlier today, and one which led to tremendous frustration on the part of Richard Nixon. And uh, that took place uh, when a computer of a certain network uh, came up with probably an erroneous impression. That was 1958, wasn't it, when, uh, when uh, Nixon was trying to, for the governorship of uh, California, and I uh, believe he was favored. 
And uh, one of the networks uh, kept saying that uh, he was in the lead. He was in the lead. As yeah, a matter 62 of fact, it was. 62. Yeah. He was never... Yeah, 62, that's right. right. He was never in the lead. And uh, the wire services at the same time were saying that uh, he was trailing and he didn't know what to do. And he said he went to bed. He was going to bed. And uh, that he was going to uh, have a statement uh, the next morning. And the suspicion is that he never did go to bed, that he uh, he sat up there and he watched the returns and listened to them and became increasingly frustrated and increasingly tired. And the next day, when it was definite that he had lost, he was so upset about the whole thing that he said some very unfortunate things about news people, which he has been trying to retract ever since, and which he's been uh, really... You know, uh, been rather ashamed of saying, I'm afraid, or at least he hasn't been very proud of having said them, and he feels that that, uh, that this was one of these incidents that can arise. We were noting earlier that Cranston had jumped out to an early lead over Salinger. That has now been reversed. We have some figures showing Salinger leading by about 1,000 now, 18,000-some-odd votes, to Cranston's 17,000-some-odd uh, votes. Now, I think this will be a good point. Uh, once again to take a brief pause. Our coverage from RKO General Los Angeles continues in just 60 seconds. This is the sound of America. It's the sound of happy children at play. Children enjoying the better things that life has to offer. Today, parents can give them better food, nicer clothes, and more comfortable homes. Are you sure you know the reasons why? Well, here's one reason that's frequently overlooked. Children live better because their parents are educated to live better. They brush their teeth and take baths more often. They drink more milk and fruit juices. They even eat more spinach and breakfast cereals. And the reason they do is because parents are being continually educated to these benefits through advertising. Advertising sells a better standard of living to you and your family. The sound of advertising is also the sound of healthier, happier children. Alan Mall once again from RKO General Election Headquarters in Los Angeles, along with Samuel Lou Bell, RKO General's noted political analyst and pollster, George Brown, WOR New York, and sitting with me right now, the former governor of the state of California, Goodwin J. Knight. Governor, this thing is shaping up to be a real Donnybrook. Indeed it is, Alan, and may I say it's at this point just a little confusing, and it's just as it was two years ago in the 1962 gubernatorial election when we had AP and UP reports of actual precinct counts and then immediately following that, there would be a projection from uh, CBS, NBC, or some of these other uh, computer agencies. And they were very confusing indeed. You recall that two years ago, we had for hours the computer results showing an entirely different tally from the actual vote count. Yeah. Now, we don't know. It's much too early to have the vote count. And while the last one I saw shows um, Governor Rockefeller winning by a third or 30 percent, that, uh, that's far too early. Well, we had another report uh, in which one of the networks has now conceded it to uh, Goldwater on yes. the basis of a projected profile. That's how can, how can they do that, uh, in your estimation, Governor, with San Francisco and San Mateo counties yet to be heard from? Well, it's, uh, 
it's beyond my comprehension, and yet they may be right. They may be able to do it now, when, whereas they couldn't do it two years ago. They may feed more accurate information directly into the machine, and it may be that they're using better uh, computers, better machinery, better people. I don't know, but uh, I have never seen these projections work, uh, either in favor of the Democrats or the Republicans, or in favor of one candidate over another. The last year, uh, two years ago, as you recall, and as I've just said, they were inaccurate. They were grossly inaccurate ten years ago, so much so that they became almost um, humorous. Now, maybe tonight they're going to work, but uh, I think we ought to wait until we get... Now, the last return shows only 101 precincts complete. And as I said, this shows 3,102 votes for Governor Rockefeller and something like 2,200 votes for... Uh, Senator Goldwater. Those were actual returns as contrasted with the projected returns we're getting, right? That is correct. And, of course, it seems to me that it's a mistake to assume that uh, Governor Rockefeller has a 30% lead on Senator Goldwater at this time. On the figures that we have so far on the Cranston-Salinger race, that one is nip and tuck. Uh, they've been separated by about 1,000 votes on any count that we have had so far, and it's much too early to tell there, too. Do you feel that the political luster of the late president uh, is going to rub off successfully on Mr. Salinger, or can he really overcome uh, Cranston? Cranston, after all, was the biggest vote-getter in Democratic uh, political history here. It's got all kinds of Cupid dolls on the wall. looks very official, you know, like a hotel lobby does. The house dick is sitting there with, you know, he's sitting there watching you, very sinister look, and there's this very official-looking clerk standing there behind him. Now, all looked, it looked finally up and up, is all I can say. So Zinsmeister and I walked up to the up to the thing there, and, and uh, we'd like a room for tonight. Oh, fine. He said, you want a single or a double? Oh, it doesn't make any difference. Give us a double, it's okay. He says, okay, one double. That'll be $6 and a half in advance for each of you. $6 and a half in those days to a guy making roughly $18 a month. You can just see what kind of a shot that was. You know, $6 and a half in advance. And he goes, ding, 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 bellboy, bellboy. Well, of course, each of us got our DOP kit, you know, our DOP kit. Uh, you know, the little bag, the little bag that contains, a, you know, it's it's got, uh, that's about it. It's got a brush, it's got a toothbrush, a little toothpaste. And ding, 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 he hits, and this guy comes rushing over and grabs them both out of our hands. Of course, that's another half buck there. <laughs> and at $18 a month, that's a lot of half buck. So ding, ding, the guy grabs them right out of our hands. So, <laughs> so Zinsmeister and I are standing, he says, come on, follow me. We go over to the elevator, we get in the elevator, we've already paid our six and a half, and up we go. We get up to the sixth floor, and, and believe it or not, it looked like a hotel. You know, it had uh, rugs on the floor, and it had rooms, and it had doors, and all that kind of stuff. So, so we walk along the hotel, right, and he's got a key. So he's dangling the key, number 728, and he's ding, ding, he's got the key, and we walk along. And it looks very authentic, you know, it looks very official. And so we get to room 628 or 728 or whatever it was. He's, here it is, fellas. He said, you want me to roll it back for you or anything like that? Do you want me to take care of anything? No, no, that's what we were, oh, oh, you're thinking of the next tip. No, 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 we'll take care of it. No, we'll take care of it. So with that, Zinsmeister takes the thing. He gives him the tip. He puts the key in the lock, turns the key, and opens it up, pitch blackness. So he says, oh, okay. He reaches over, flips on the light, and there is our room. Our room is a standard hotel room. A standard room. You know, it's got a... It's got a bureau over here, and over here you can see where the closet is, and there's the John back there. This looks standard at one little window seat. It looks fine, except for one thing. There were seven army cots in there. Seven army cots, cheek by jowl. 
They were at least twice as close as they ever were in the barracks. And in the seven army cots, there were at least 26 guys, all of whom had paid $6 and a half for a double. Since Meister looks in and says, oh, we're in the wrong room. Must be in the wrong room. I, excuse me, fellas. And there is a great big tall PFC sort of comes easing out of the john. He says, you ain't in the wrong room, man. You've been took just like us. He says, there's your cot over there in the corner, the one over there next to the radiator with the 900 degrees coming out of it. You're just last in line. That's all, man. Well, so Gasser says, oh, yeah? Wait a minute. And he rushes down the hall. He's into the elevator and down, and he goes up to the clerk, and he says, what is this, a double? Guy says, I didn't tell you that you're the only two guys in there. You, he says, that's a double room. That's all. I didn't say that you were the only two. And he says, give me my six and a half back. He says, I'm sorry, soldier. Now, look, you you, uh, you just asked me for a double. I'm not going to have to call the MPs, am I? Well, what do you mean, call the MPs? I'm going to have to. Uh, Jack, will you? Jack gets up in the middle of the floor and blows his whistle. And at that moment, both both Zinsmeister and I chickened out. The minute they blow the whistle on a, on a T5, he knows we're in. It's, <laughs> it's, oh, well, it's all right. Oh, it's all, all right. All right. We'll take a rotten room. And so later that night, we are walking down the street, and we are thoroughly depressed. I cannot tell you how depressed it is. It's, 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 like, it's like all of your life dreaming of heaven, and you get up there, and it turns out to be like BBDNO. You know, <laughs> and it really is fantastic. It's, you know, it's, it's a giant promotion you bought, and you get up there, and what is it? You know, what is it? And, and so, so here's the outside world. The outside world is even worse than Camp Crowder. It's just incredible. So we are walking, and the fistfights and the yelling and the screaming are breaking out all along the street because because soldiers, you know, get in town. They're really bugged now. And so they start hitting each other. They can't find any of the natives. The natives are hiding in the woods or something. So they're hitting and yelling and screaming, and guys are drunk. And so Gasser and myself and Zinsmeister, by the way, we picked up Gasser somewhere along the line. I remember there were three of us. And we are walking down the street. We pass a hardware store, and, and there were at least 498 army stores in a row. You know the kind of army stores that sell good conduct ribbons? And then there's these fly-specked looking uniforms in the window. You know the kind of the army stores. You know, it says, ribbons sewed on while you wait. Big sign. It says, all campaign ribbons of all campaigns and all theaters of war available here with zippers so they can quickly be removed if the MPs are catching up with you. That kind of thing. So, so we're looking, and, oh boy, and we're walking all of a sudden. As we're passing an alley, a guy is sort of crunched to me. He says, hey, hey, come here. And it's a soldier in a GI. And so Gas says, what do you want, man? He says, oh boy, is this a time? Isn't this time a drag? You know, here's a son, sounds like a civilian. You know, he sounds like he's a guy with with brains. And Gas says, "Boy, you are not kidding, man. What a drag!" And I says, "Whoo, boy! It's never Hesper was never like this." He says, "Boy, he says, you know, I've been I've been looking around all night for something to do, and this is the, this is the worst thing. This is this is ridiculous. Boy, everything's a clip joint." And Gas says, "Oh man, you're because already you know we have been clipped about nine different ways. You see, so Gas says, oh boy, oh boy, did I ever tell you about the three dollar Coke I bought? <laughs> Woohoo, three dollar Coke. That's the only town I ever saw in my life that watered Cokes. I mean, not whiskey, Cokes. Those guys even watered water. It's a wild scene. Three dollar Coke. Well, so so Gas and I walk along, and the guy says, oh man, what a drink. And so we we strike up a casual conversation. He seemed to be on our side." And he says, gee whiz, he said, wow, what a rotten place. 
And Gaza says, gee whiz, wow, what a rotten place. And I said, wow, gee whiz, what a rotten place. And he says, you know, uh, you, you guys feel like a little cards or anything? Just, just to, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I just want to get the bus back and the next bus is at two o'clock in the morning, man. Let's sit down and play. Well, all I got to say is that within 30 seconds, this guy convinced us his cards were, you know, that's uh, cards, you know, you can't see them very good. I got something in my pocket that's more fun. And out came the galloping dominoes. Now, as far as I was concerned, that was what me and my grandmother and all my cousins played with bingo. She played something with, the, she hit a bell, you know, called a bingo, bingo! Or she would, <laughs> she, yeah, you remember that thing with the, with the, with the dice? That, what, it was a bingo? No, it's not bingo, it's another game. Uh, grandmothers always play it. No, it's not bingo. Grandmothers always play it. What's a, it's a game that they hit, they hit a bell when they, yeah, they roll out all the dice, there's five dice they roll. Well, that was the game that my grandmother played. So they looked friendly, you know, these little things. And I, there were several games. Like I had a game that I played with my brother and a couple of kids in the block called Racers. And it was a game that had little dice, you know, and you moved the little racers around. So I never, I was not afraid of dice up to that point. So the guy says, all right, now I'll tell you, Zinsmeister knew how to play the game. Apparently they played this in his old college dorm a little bit just for fun. So Zinsmeister says, oh, I know how to play it. And Gasser says, yeah, I can play it. I don't you, you roll for seven. The guy says, well, not always. Now, I'll explain to you how you play it. Now, this is the way you, you hold them like this in the hand, and when you roll them, well, within, within a minute and a half, we were instructed in the vague outlines of the game. He says, now, are you ready to start? I will start, and let's all, for just kicks, let's all put a dime down here. Well, we started to roll, and by George, I'll tell you, within about a minute and a half, old Shep has got these things in his hands. He begins to roll them, and, I, and I'm not going to kid you, Within five minutes, Shep has got a dollar in front of him. I started with a dime. Yeah, this is better than the chain letters, you know, that whole scene. And, and I kind of like this game. It's a lot of fun. And the guy kept saying, oh, darn it. He'd say, oh, darn it, you win again. Oh, boy, you're sure lucky. And so he'd start rolling. And, and I noticed that the three or four other guys started to come around, guys I didn't know before. You know, they were from other outfits, and they were all like master sergeants and first sergeants, stuff like that, old grizzled veterans. And they would say things, oh, shucks. Oh, crying out loud, another seven, you win again. Well, we went like that for a while until pretty soon I had my wallet out and Gasser had his wallet out and Zinsmeister had his out. We all had our, our six dollars in the ring and, you know, we were winning pretty good. Well, this went on for a while until the crowd started to get bigger and bigger and the lights are getting darker and darker. It's now about three o'clock in the morning and there's a flickering light, you know, just sort of flickering light over there out on the street. And we're back under, I remember clearly and distinctly, we are under a fire escape. And, and once in a while, somebody about six stories above at two o'clock in the morning, we go, and you splat, you know, and so, <laughs> oh yeah, this was, this was, this was, we were, we were living life and then the, it was to be lived there. You know, after all, it was an alley. We were soldiers. We knew what was going on. And, and so we're playing away. Then it's kind of fun. And then these sergeants, oh, shucks. Oh, shucks. Fred, there you did. You did it again. Boy, these guys are lucky. Well, <laughs> well, uh, about that time, there were more guys began to form until there must have been about 25 guys. Now, I want to tell any of you guys who have never been involved in this type of skin game, that there usually are about four or five guys who work it together. This is the hardcore cadre. And, and they don't, they don't really move in, as John would say, Long John would say, until the tip is ripe. The tip being there are enough suckers around to make the skinning worth the skinning. Well, by this time, there were about 15 other guys like Zinsmeister and Gasser and me 
clean-limbed youth who kept saying, gee, this is a, you know, I never, I always thought craps was kind of a terrible, my dad used to tell me not to play, and I don't know why, it was a lot of fun. Here, let me wash this. And there's about 15 of us, and on the money, all of a sudden, for some absolutely magical reason, this little short squat sergeant started to win. I mean, you know, he's one of the guys, he says, gee whiz, wow, I mean, luck has changed. He says, watch this. He's going like that. And the other three or four guys kept saying, hey, Charlie, for crying out loud, you got hot hands, Charlie. Wow. And they pretended like they were betting against the boy. You roll another one of them, Charlie. And oh, boy. So, of course, we're going along with it until finally it looked a little desperate. You know, we've got all our money in the ring. But it looked like any minute now the tide was going to turn because it had turned always up to this time when all of a sudden the guy says, okay, fellas, let's put it all in the ring. Come on, let's go. Gas says, okay. Zinsmeister says, okay. The sergeant says, all right, let's go. And there's a pile of money that looked like a small bonfire. This is the first time I've ever seen money under those conditions. It just sort of looks, it looks very ratty, you know. And it looks like, after a while, when you play, play games with money, it doesn't have any reality to it. It isn't like the stuff you buy bus tickets with. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't look like that. You say, it just is like monopoly money, play money, you know. It's just stuff that you keep handing back and forth. That is where it gets very sneaky, and I can see why guys can suddenly lose their whole world. Because the money isn't real after a while in a game. The game is real. The money isn't. It's just like, you know, playing with matches. So we're playing. All of a sudden, the guy says, well, that's it, fellas. That's about it. He puts all the money in his pocket, and these four guys together melt into the darkness. And they were standing. All of us. It's now about 3.30 in the morning. Gas says, boy, you know, it was kind of a lot of fun. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit, you know, he's at it. Like, that was a lot of fun, you know. That was more fun than if we'd gone to the movies, wasn't it, Zinsmeister? Zinsmeister says, yeah, <laughs> sure was. Boy, that movie house is real hot. It's terrible. It's smelly in there. Wow. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. How about let's go back to the hotel, fellas? And so we start going back to the hotel, and we're kidding the Raj, you know, what fun it was. And all the while, each one of us is frantically trying to figure out how he's going to ante up the 75 cents for the lousy bus ticket. We were cleaned, I'm telling you, sheared. Right down to the last thing, sheared. About 20 minutes later, we are going up in the elevator, and who do you think is in the elevator with us? That friendly little staff sergeant with the fat wallet and the hot hands. <laughs> He's standing there, and Gassa says, you know, that's kind of a funny game you guys play. It's a lot of fun. Do you, do you play this often? Ah, oh, no, I just come in once in a while. I suspect that guy is still in Joplin making the scene. He says, no, no, no. And Gasser says, gee, you know, it, it'd be a lot of fun, but, you know, uh, we're broke. And that guy looked at us and he says, you, you, what do you mean, you're broke? You fellas, you're broke? And Zinsmeister says, yeah, we don't know how we're going to get back. And his, there is a great type of grin now, I wish I could tell you the word. There is a phrase referring to this kind of grin. And I can't tell you this type of grin because we're on the radio. But he suddenly broke out into that kind of grin. A great, big, happy, gloating, wonderful grin. And he says, uh, oh, what the hell? He reaches into his pocket and he says, listen, he says, I was awful lucky tonight, fellas. And he takes out three $1 bills. He says, here. He says... Here. So next time you come to town, you want to have a little game? He said, you'll find me in the alley. <laughs> he gave us three bucks. <laughs>
<laughs> so we go into our hotel room, which is populated by 37 other guys and about 9 million bed bucks. And about every 20 minutes, the whole crew of drunken whacks would arrive and start banging on the door, yelling because they had rented the rooms. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy, I can't tell you what happened. That night, it was wild. We kept throwing a corporal down the air shaft. I don't know how the rest of that. So early the next morning, Gasser and I are looking out of this window. We cannot sleep. The dawn is coming up over Joplin, Missouri. And you could see a few drunken soldiers reeling through the little park in the square there. And you can hear the MPs, the wailing of the MP sirens as they're going after one guy or the other. And Gasser looks out. I look out. Zinsmeister looks out. We're all standing there. And the radiator is hissing. And it's beginning to rain a little bit. And their guys are snoring. And the corporal is drunk on the floor. And Gasser says to me, Shepard, this is the first time I feel like I'm in the Army. And I said... <laughs> I don't want to think that this is the army. And Zinsmeister looks at me and says, what do you mean you don't want to think this is the army? And the three of us just stood there and looked out of the window. And finally, Zinsmeister says, well, let's go down to the bus station. The first bus is at 8 o'clock. Our pass, by the way, was good till midnight. Our first bus is at 8 o'clock. So let's go down there and get that bus. What do you say, huh? Okay, let's go down and get the bus. And so five minutes later, we're walking down the street and the sun is trying to sneak through that fitful rain and those trees are standing off there to the left in that park, knee-deep in old used bottles, dead to the world soldiers in the privet hedges and occasionally the sound of the MP siren wail could be heard as we're walking our way on down towards the Greyhound Station, bound for the land and no return, bound for the PX and Company A. Ba ba boo ba 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 not much I can tell you about Mandarin House that you haven't heard me say before. And, and, uh, some, some of the letters I've been getting recently have been very embarrassing. Uh, one guy wrote me a letter and said, Shepard, I am sure that within a short time when the authorities catch on to what fantastic food and what incredible ecstasy is brought on by that fantastic food at the Mandarin House, I am sure that the fuzz will make it illegal. Like everything else that's good. And before they make it illegal, I would like to recommend a visit to Mandarin House. The food is Mandarin, Chinese food, and is probably the best Oriental food that you'll find along the eastern seaboard. At least it's the best I've ever found. Mandarin House, there's two of them. There's Mandarin East on 2nd Avenue, just north of 57th Street. Beautiful little restaurant. And then there's Mandarin House on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the village. The food is great. They have a bar. Okay? And we also have the Christmas fund here, and if you would like to contribute to our little fund to uh, distribute toys to the kids around this area and hospitals and so on, drop your contribution in an envelope, address it to 710, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York, okay? 
Oh, yeah. No, you yeah, yeah. no, no, don't. I don't for one minute think that I am feeling sorry for myself because this is the way life is. It has nothing whatsoever to do with me or Zinsmeister or Gasser. I want to tell you one of the greatest crap games. Gee, I wish I had time. I would like to tell you the greatest crap game I ever saw in my life which occurred in a, at, at, I would say, roughly temperatures of about 115 degrees amid the most incredible collection of mosquitoes that I, I, well, it's just unbelievable. It was like the mosquitoes were so thick that the countryside looked like it was smoking, Ed. It just looked like smoke rising. It was mosquitoes. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning in the very heart of the Everglades. And, yes, in the middle of the gigantic swamp that is the Everglades, and, and, and the guys were calling out, and you could hear them rolling the dice, and, and, uh, under, under an enormous blanket. The guys had pinned a whole bunch of blankets together, and they had propped it up a little bit. The blankets kept this, and somebody had about, uh, had about three flashlights under there, and it was, oh, was it hot? The flashlights were, can you imagine getting sweating because you're next to a flashlight? Well, there are about 85 guys under these GI woolen blankets in the middle of the, in the middle of the dismal swamp. And they're rolling these dice, and the desperate looks on those faces, these guys, all with their helmets on. And they're rolling the dice, and about every 30 seconds out in the swamp, you could hear the sound of a gigantic bull alligator, who either wanted to get in on the game or was looking for something real good. And then someone would say, what did you say, Frank? What are you rolling for? And they're rolling away there, and the sweat is pouring down, dripping on the guys. And they would have to take the dice, literally take the dice and dry them off between each roll. They were sweating so, and the sweat is, the bull is bellowing out there. He was mad because he was broke and couldn't get in the game. <laughs>